You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. So right now, we are headed towards a live podcast of The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, SGU. SGU is eight years old, and for each and every one of those eight years, it has been consistently in the top ten science podcasts on iTunes. We get over a hundred thousand listens every week. And over the past four years, every year, winners of the People's Choice Awards, either for science or for education, pretty damn good record and pretty great to listen to. I'm going to introduce uh, sort of the ringleader of the posse to you, and then he will introduce uh, the rest of his cohorts, and most of you already know him. He's an academic clinical neurologist at the Yale University School of Medicine. He's the president and co-founder of the New England Skeptical Society, who, along with the New York City Skeptics, are the co-creators and co-producers of Nexus. He's also the host and producer of Skeptics Guide to the Universe. Uh, the super neurological blog covers news and issues in neuroscience, but also general science, scientific skepticism, philosophy of science, critical thinking, and the intersection of science with the media and society. And I highly recommend that blog. He also contributes every Monday to the Skeptic Blog, every Wednesday to Science-Based Medicine, a blog dedicated to issues of science and medicine. And based on his sheer volume of output, I believe he has solved the mystery of how to live without sleep. But he refuses to tip me the secret. Uh, please welcome the Energizer Bunny of skepticism and my frequent colleague in many matters, skeptical Dr. Steve Novella. Steve, you gotta tell me about that no sleep thing, dude. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is April 6, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Rebecca Watson. Jay Novella. Evan Bernstein. And we have a special guest rogue with us this week, Kathleen Carr. Hello. <laughs> really? I had no idea you were an impressionist. You did it. Kathleen, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. This is very exciting. I can't wait to get into it. Well, Kathleen, first, tell us a little bit about what you do. I am an improviser in New York City, as well as an actor-comedian. So I spend my time making things up in my mind in front of other people. That's Jay's job as well, actually. <laughs> Except I don't do it in front of other people. I just do you, it in the car. <laughs> and he doesn't get paid for it, right? I'm an exhibitionist about it. <laughs> uh, and you have a very interesting history in terms of your parents. Would you mind telling us about Oh, that? my mother was a nun, and my father was a priest. Sounds like the beginning of a joke. So are you an immaculate conception? My brother is. Uh, Unfortunately, I came two after. Uh, They met. Uh, Yeah, that's that's how they met. No, your dad came, and then you came after. (laughs) I didn't say that. Oh, boy. I need to protect myself. Starting early, Jay. That's an Uh, example of a joke that will be edited out later. (laughs) (laughs) So, So now you guys know this is the benefit of the live show. 
jo- Jay's yes. terrible jokes. They were actually missionaries in Taiwan. Oh boy! Don't yeah. <laughs> don't want to get Jay, more easy. into it. We did not prep this backstage. I promise. No, not at all. Not at all. And I guess my mother looked ravishing in all black. And uh, my dad, you know, he saw a good thing. <laughs> so, all kidding aside, they they hooked up while they were. They became fond of one another. Then they quit, and then they hit it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. They See quit it, and then they hit you, it. First That's you quit it, and then right. you hit it. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> it's usually the other way around. It's like usually you hit it, and then and you, you don't have it. to explain the joke. <laughs> yeah. Right? No, no, he does. No. <laughs> Apparently, he did have to. I take it back. <laughs> so the uh, our uh, show in New York City every year is always our memorial show for Perry DeAngelis. Thank you. Are you, are you so Perry is, as you know, Perry, you know, is a, was a friend of all of us, a, a valued member of the show, uh, a, a, just a huge presence in our lives and on the SGU. We think about him every day since he's been gone, and we, we miss his presence on the show. And we have to make sure that we always pause to, uh, to remember what he, what he meant to us and what he meant to the SGU. There's a little sample of Perry on the show. I have a bit of news here that I think will finally put to rest our ongoing debate about who is tougher, birds or monkeys. There was a debate. Uh, Recently, uh, a fellow by the name of Robert Cusack, no relation to the actor, was uh, stopped at Los Angeles Airport. He was um, going through customs. He had just flown in from Thailand when suddenly a couple of birds of paradise escaped from his luggage and flew out over the heads of the customs agents. And he was the, he was an animal smuggler. He was trying to smuggle them into the country. And, you know, of course, the agents immediately, you know, grabbed him. And they said, okay, buddy, do you have anything else? you have anything else to uh, declare at this time? And he said, and I quote, I have monkeys in my pants. <laughs> That's just a little taste of Perry. All right, well, let's move on. So, Rebecca, uh, <clears throat> April 13th. This day in skepticism. Yeah, that's not today, in case anyone's confused. But you know, this is this podcast is going out on the thirteenth, so that's uh, that's what I'm going to talk about. First, to preface it, uh, a few weeks ago, I was driving on the highway, and um, there was a coolant leak, and the car broke down, and I was like ten miles from home, so it was really distressing. So I feel like I pretty much know exactly how Tom Hanks felt on April 13th, 1970, when he said, Houston, something happened. Help. <laughs> uh, Houston, we have a problem. Is that? No. I don't that's think not, that's... Well, first of all... It was, Houston, something's up. Please do something. Or we're going to die. Yeah. The, the exact quote is, okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. It's pretty close. I mean, it's pretty close to what the Houston, we've had a problem, which is the movie poster quote. Then Houston responded, this is Houston, say again, please. And then uh, Lovell responded, Houston, we've had a problem. That's the exact. I think that was Tom Hanks that said yeah. that. <laughs> it was Lovell playing Tom Hanks in the actual no. Apollo 13 mission. No, I don't think so. Don't Do you want to so. hear it? Yeah, yeah, you got it. Is yeah. this going to work? Yeah, it'll work. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know they filmed those scenes in actual zero G? Hey, Houston, we've had a problem here. Can say again, please. Uh, well, they clearly had a problem, you know. Yeah. 
Did they? Well, they they filmed it in zero G because it was a, like a documentary. They were there in space. <laughs> he sounded really relaxed while he was saying it too, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. It, it was really relaxed, relaxed while he was yeah. saying it. Yeah, like it was no big deal. Right. Yeah. So yeah, if you're not aware, it was an oxygen leak, like an, an oxygen tank exploded, if you haven't seen the movie. So if they just edit out all the screaming, like the, there's no way that one of those guys didn't completely lose it. It is awesome, though. I mean, they, they did keep their cool, and it's awesome, yeah. right? Those guys, the nerves of steel. Like, what would, like, you hear stories about other astronauts, like they crash planes, and then they just get up and go back to their desk job. Yeah. Oh, it's true. I mean, it's like we've had, that's, the, that's why that quote became so famous. It's the understatement of, yeah, we've had a little problem here kind of vibe when something happened that could have killed all three of them and probably nine times out of ten would, you know, that, that level of problem happening while, you, while you're on your way, two days on your way to the moon. So, yeah, absolute cool. So we joke about the, the April the 13th. It was Apollo 13. Do you know that, that also the, the aircraft launched on April 1st, two days later, two days earlier, at 1313 Central Standard Time? I mean, Ooh. come on, really? Wow. They launched the thing at 1313 just to, just, so if, so if nothing happens, <laughs> fine. If something happens, now we have to deal with that coincidence for the rest of our schedule yeah. lives. Still, <laughs> still cleaning up that Just mess. messing with us. That's what that was. But was it a coincidence, or did they plan to do it because... Well, that's what I'm saying. They must have cute. done that. Yeah. They know exactly. It's a countdown, right? right. So they know when it's going to launch. <laughs> it would be troublesome if they didn't. <laughs> yeah, but just know to the second when it's going to launch. Right. Yeah, Ten, Steve, not whatever. Just go. But yeah. there's often, yeah, right? <laughs> Steve, there's often delays. I mean, they could have been delayed. Even a minute would have changed it, right? Yeah, but was there? I don't remember. <laughs> not a coincidence. No, I don't know, guys. All I know is that they had a flair for drama. Yes. <laughs> and that's good showmanship, does. and that's what astronauts are all about. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. So, Evan, um, there was a survey recently about public beliefs regarding popular conspiracy theories. Sure was. Just a few days ago, the organization called the Public Policy Polling, which, you know, is a polling firm, uh, released the results of a national survey looking at uh, conspiracy theories. And uh, they broke it down by topic and cross-referenced it by political preference. You can look at the poll and read it in, in terms of these percentages. When you extrapolate that into the number of people in the country, you start to take a look at very large numbers and saying, wow, a lot of people believe a lot of nonsense. For example, do you believe that shape-shifting reptilian people control our world by taking on human form and gaining political power to manipulate our societies? Or not? Four uh, percent do, at least according to the poll. You have to wonder if some people are just, you know, screwing with the pollsters at, the, at a certain point, right? I mean, really, four percent of people, 300 million people in the country. I mean, that's 12 million people. 12 no. million people, yeah. <laughs> that's, I, I, I have a, I'm a little skeptical uh, when, it, when it comes to that. But, I'll, you know, even if, okay, say, say it's really two, uh, half that, 2%. That's six, you know, what, we're at six million people. That's a lot of, yeah. you know, whacked out people with strange beliefs. That many people can't be wrong, though, right? We can all. Yeah. How could they? But it's true. I mean, you have a survey. You have no idea if people are just goofing on the survey and saying, oh, yeah, I believe in reptilian overlords, you know. Right? Didn't you watch V? Is that? Right. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. I don't know if that's why there's a 2.8% plus or minus uh, in the poll here. I don't know if, if that is part of the accounting of the I don't know. Uh, I think that's just, that's just standard survey statistics, not yeah. necessarily accounting for people lying. Actually, the, so the lizard people thing got all the headlines, but 
if you look at this survey, they broke down the stats by uh, whether you voted for Romney or Obama. Mm -hmm. So the lizard people thing is not, to me, the most insane thing about this. A bigger deal to me is the 4% of people who voted for Obama who believe that Obama is the Antichrist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That one stuck yeah. out. Well, so either... They're Satan worshippers, obviously. Either they're Satan worshippers or they're doing like some George W. Bush level, like trying to bring about the apocalypse. Yeah, because that's the thing in that, I think in that community, that there's a, a group of people that want so desperately for the apocalypse to come that they were like, yeah. well, here's my chance. Yeah, bring it Finally on. get to legally vote for the Antichrist. You know, I mean, how often does that happen? Uh -huh, I'll show you. Uh -huh. I love the guy that wrote the, the list. I love those questions. I want to write like, do you think that the president is the Antichrist? Who comes up with that? The internet, I think, came up with yeah. that. God That's bless the there. internet. I don't like the one that says aliens exist. It's too ambiguous. That is a bad... They should say, or do, the, do like advanced right. technological alien species exist and have visited the Earth? Yes. Right. Would have been That's a, the right yeah. question. Yeah. That, do they exactly. exist, you mean, in the Andromeda galaxy? Probably. Right. Yeah. Are they interested yeah. in my rectum? I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, Bob, out of curiosity, where would you... How do you answer the question? How do you answer that question? I have to say yes. It's overwhelmingly likely that they do exist, but they, have they visited Earth? No. Yeah, but that question, see, I would answer it not sure. I think that's the right answer. Right. Hey, Rebecca, I think they're not interested in wrong. your rectum. They're interested in Uranus. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, we're going to leave that one alone. <laughs> I'm just going to set that there and walk away. Recently, there was a, uh, an item in Scientific American uh, discussing the seven terms that they thought were the most commonly misused scientific terms. These are, uh, this is a topic that comes up a lot on our show. We talk about the public you know, understanding and perception of science and how difficult it is often to communicate. Often scientists use words differently than colloquial you know, public use. Um, and sometimes just conceptually, m words are misunderstood. So these are the seven words that they came up with. So one was hypothesis. That's a good one. Right, mm -hmm. um, I agree with that. Uh, well, th I will say though that you know, again, both of my daughters are going through grade school and, and middle school right now, so I am closely paying attention to their science education, and they actually are being taught in science class what the actual definition of hypothesis is. You know, it's not just a wild guess; it is an educated guess that has to be falsifiable. You have to be able to use it in order to make predictions about an experiment or an observation that you will make. So I don't know how, I think that, you know, uh, like most things we learn in school, most people are going to forget probably the details and they're just left with the, it's a wild guess bit and miss the, it has to be falsifiable bit. So that I thought was a good one. Theory, of course, the whole evolution is just a theory thing. Theory is not a guess. You know, most people use the word theory to mean hypothesis when they really mean hypothesis. Mm -hmm. But theory is a, you know, well-established uh, evidence-based, ex ex you know, explanatory system. It actually can explain many individual things, um, and it's not. And the theory could be completely, fully established fact, like evolution. But couldn't someone come up with a theory that later just gets disproven? Right. Of course, no, nothing is 100 percent in science. So, it, when something is a theory, is it still under question and scrutiny? It's the whole spectrum. So it, it just means that it, you, you have an explanatory system that has graduated from just being a hypothesis. There is some meat there. There's some evidence there. But it could be preliminary. 
It could be you know controversial. It could be ironclad, or it could be on could be bogus. It could be rejected. You know, the the, ter the the term is neutral with regard to how well established it is by science and how well accepted it is. So, do you think part of the problem might be that the spectrum is too big that they should have degrees, or maybe maybe they should put error yeah. bars with a theory and say you know? Well, this I think is absolutely, and you'll see that in any good science paper has error bars. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's just this is how sure we are of this. But I think, though, the problem with a lot of these is that the colloquial use of the term is different than the scientific use of the term. And, in fact, some people have suggested that scientists should just come up with new terms, you know, that are not, don't have a, a colloquial use. I don't know that that really would be a solution. Uh, but that, that, I think, is the bigger problem, that people use theory in everyday speech as a guess. Right. And, and then when scientists use theory, they go, oh, it's just a theory. They don't know what, they don't know what When do you think that happened? When, when, uh, theory became an educated guess in the colloquialism. I'm curious about it. Like, it's just, it's, it's interesting that it was established as yeah. a defined term. Right. And then it just, just kind of went out there as something else. Was it ever not that way? I mean, right? At, from the get go? Non, you know, what, colloquially? Was it ever that way? I don't yeah, know. I don't know. Oh. That's a good question. The etymology of, of the different uses of the word theory. You'd have to look that up. But, I, you know, I agree, at least since science has been popularized, which goes back, the first scientific superstar was Albert Einstein. That was the first time you actually had an international superstar who was a scientist. And really? that, he, that did really popularize a lot of, of scientific notions. I don't know if it goes back to then or if it goes back even further. Uh, but that, that is a good question. I wonder if, going back to the fact that there are 12 million people that really believe, you know, that there are lizards... Lizard people. Um, lizard people. Lizard no, there people. really are lizards. Like that idea of like, <laughs> yeah. The only 12 million people believe there are lizards. I keep telling them, you guys, just go to Florida. Um, well, we but, know uh, those lizards are actually frogs. Yeah, but the idea that they, they're challenged on their beliefs. Like, it, like when I theories came into being, I wonder if people were like, no, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't accept this as true. So right. by sheer will of my, my mind force of not accepting it, that it, it watered down the term. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so the, their disbelief, they unconsciously changed the word. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, that is, and that is true that when people reject a specific scientific claim because they don't like the claim, like global warming, for example, or evolution, they end up rejecting all of science as a byproduct of their rejection of the one thing they don't like. Yeah. So they, they downgrade or degrade their respect about what the scientific method is, what theories are. So I think that it, it is sort of collateral damage mm -hmm. to culture wars over specific issues like evolution. Right. Yeah. Another word that they, on um, this is the scientific, scientific American list still, was uh, model. That's an interesting word. You know, mathematicians use the word model, a mathematical model of something. You can have a computer model of something. It's not, it's not really a theory. It's just you're using a representation of something as a way of describing, uh, describing it or seeing how it should behave, et cetera. Um, and again, so there are some specific definitions of that word. What's interesting about how that gets abused is if you'll notice creationists, um, especially like in the, around the 70s, started to refer to creation and evolution as models, the evolution model and the creation model. You guys know, mm. know that? And yeah. they did that specifically because creationism is not a scientific theory. So they said, okay, fine, we'll use the word model, and then we'll apply that to evolution too, because that's not a, a scientific theory either. So they tried to make this equivalency argument between evolution and creation by just calling them both models. But that was deliberate. That, that didn't that just, was deliberate. Oh, yeah. that, that wasn't, wasn't a progress. It wasn't cultural. Yeah. Yeah. 
I was very surprised to see the word skeptic on the list, on the Scientific American list. This was because because skeptic is carries a lot of baggage, unfortunately, in the in the in the public. I mean, you know, it could mean cynical. We talk about it all the time. People think the word skeptic means cynical rather than somebody who applies scientific skepticism to um, to the process of whether or not to believe in something. Nature versus nurture. The point that was made there is that this is a false dichotomy, right? Almost every time you say, "Well, is this nature or nurture?" The answer is probably yes. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel so good about that. <laughs> And significant, this is one I, I, this is my bugaboo, right? Whenever I talk about a medical study, clinic, uh, statistical significance. So we do, the term statistical significance refers to just a, a, a mathematical analysis of the probability that the data would be what it is, give, you know, given whether or not the effect is real or not. And, but people confuse that with a significant result with like in medical research, a clinically significant result or that the, the effect size was big. When, in fact, you can have a teeny tiny effect size that's, that's statistically significant. So that's an important term not to confuse. I think there was more. And natural, we talked about that to death. The word natural has no real operational definition. Um, okay, so we all have our own, our own words that we chose. So, Bob, you, your word that you would like to add to the list is quantum. Yeah, of course I would pick quantum, either that or nano, right? But uh, <laughs> quantum is abused. I just cringe so often when I, when I come across it. Um, we've all heard of quantum, quantum mechanics, the study of atomic scale phenomena. It's so counterintuitive. It's so bizarre that pseudoscientists latch onto it to, you know, to justify and validate their, their crazy, crazy theories. And it's, it's easy to see why. There's so, there's so many weird things about it. This, this tunneling, entanglement, superposition, so many things that just make no sense. Uh, and they love that because they could say, well, yeah, look at this stuff. So it must, quantum mechanics must explain this crazy stuff that's got no, that's got no evidence backing it up at all. So that's, it's very common. Quantum leap is a, is an interesting kind of yeah. variant. Yeah, of did they, did they do a good job explaining Who? quantum, quantum leap, the show? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I, wasn't, I watched a few episodes. It was good. I never really got it. I don't what? think they really, you know, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> Get off the stage right now. <laughs> I make it up in other areas, believe me. Um, so quantum leap, quantum leap, they say uh, a, a quantum leap in, in uh, computer processing means a huge advance, a sudden huge advance. And I, I, every time I hear that, I cringe again a little because I never use that term because I know in quantum mechanics, it's really infinitesimal. It's like a quantum leap from one electron orbit to another. So, uh, but I mean, I know language evolves and adapts and stuff, so I don't have much and of a problem with relatively it. Relatively speaking, though, that is a big leap for the electrons. For electrons. Yeah. Right? Not, re not really. It's but the word, it's the tiniest thing it does, so I say no. <laughs> yeah, sure. The, it's the minimal movement it could make is one, one quanta. That's true. Hmm. All right, Rebecca, light year. Yeah, one. this happened just last week or so. Someone tweeted at me and said, Rebecca Watson has set feminism back by light years. And <laughs> someone else Kessel responded to us far. and said it, and only took her four parsecs. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Uh, yeah, so I I find that annoying. That's all. You got a problem with Buzz Lightyear? <laughs> He's all right. I don't. Know, uh, I don't have a problem with like light years ahead. That that expression. It could mean distance. Yeah. Right, but. But in that context, I mean, it can only really mean time, yeah. so they really did misuse right. it. Evan, you chose climate. I chose climate because um, this is, especially with lots of other friends and people, family that I speak to, they, they seem to always mistake weather for climate. 
And it's, certainly we know what the, uh, what the climate deniers, the climate change deniers um, latch on to, to that as well, in which they almost always mistake weather for climate. Weather has to do with short changes over a course of time, very short, you know, from minutes to, you know, maybe weeks, maybe months, but that's about it. But climate is a much more uh, lengthy amount of time. In some cases, some scientists believe that, you know, technically it's about a 30-year period of measurements that you're taking to make to determine what climate changes are occurring. Um, yet people systematically confuse these two terms. Well, there was a survey, I think now I'm going back about a month, where they asked people if they thought that climate change was happening. And they asked them on a cold day and a warm day. Yep. Oh, my God. And more people thought it was happening on a warm day than on a cold day. <laughs> and that, that's to the and point. And it was significant. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's true because it's become uh, almost a a standard uh, exchange between two people on a really hot, like when there's a hot spell, yeah. people will like run into each other and be like, oh, global warming, huh? Yeah, yeah, you know? right, right. It's like, it's like asking how someone's doing or yeah. how do you feel? It's like become that, is, that normal. You do. It's, it's small talk. It's the weather. You know, you talk to people, you know, about the, the weather when you have, you know, yeah. basically nothing else to talk about or get going on a conversation with, you know, the weather is something, you know, that's always there, but people wonder, just don't get exactly what climate means. I wonder if polar bears talk about it. They don't talk, Bob. <laughs> They're too busy crying. Is it, do, oh, God, it's so sad. Wait, hold on a second. So do any of you guys, like, because I talk about it with all my friends and stuff at work or whatever, like, I'm like the climate guy. Like, they're like, oh, Jay, Jay doesn't believe. Jay thinks that there is a significant climate change or, you know, global warming or whatever. So whenever it's really cold out, I get this a lot. I go, oh, what's up with your global warming now, Jay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Does that happen right. to anybody else? I'm like, what am I, the... Effing weather guy over here? Like, I'm just following the science. The thing so. is, like, the climate change predicts that you get colder winters with global warming. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I like to tell people when it's really cold, oh, yeah, that damn global warming, man, it's making it really cold. Because it's true. It makes it cold in the winter. It's gotta, you just got to educate them, Jay. You have to give them a good argument yes. to support your position. I think anyone who saw the day after tomorrow knows <laughs> what's going to happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was scientifically accurate. Yeah, totally. Based on a true story. Totally. So the argument is in more of a uh, a formal format. Your argument is basically just your platform or or your group of information that you're presenting to the other side. It isn't the you know your fighting argument. It's more of just the information that you're conveying and saying this is what I think is the truth, and the other guy says this is what I think is the truth. So. It's not really an argument. Like, they're not fighting yeah, with yeah, each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've been working on that one, too. Yeah, an argument is premises, logic, conclusion. That's an argument. Rather than just having a, yeah, having a verbal fight over yeah. your position. Or we'll just, have the toilet seat down or up, right? right. Or the, right. And the biggest thing is that what I find uh, about the term argument that happens most often is people characterize what they're saying as an argument when, in fact, all they're doing is making an assertion. Just saying this is true is not an argument. It's an assertion. But they say that's my argument. It's true. You know, that's, I hear that a lot. They, no, you actually didn't make an argument there. There's no facts or logic. Although it can lead to an argument. <laughs> that could lead well, to the other kind of argument, yeah. All right. it, it, yeah, but like it doesn't sound as good to be like, oh, my husband and I are having assertions. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Confuse that with something else. <laughs> Did we ever talk about like... 
we joke around about Steve and his wife Jocelyn having a fight. Did we ever talk about this on the show? Probably not. Steve, <laughs> here it goes. So we found out. We They're found about out to have another one that when Steve and his wife argue, and his, so Jocelyn will say, "You know, God damn it, Steve! You know, you're such a jerk. You're not doing what I." And Steve's like, uh, "That's an ad hominem." Like in the argument. <laughs> And, like, of course, it's like throwing kerosene on a fire or gasoline oh, yeah. on a fire. She's like, what? <laughs> like, she just it doesn't, happen, it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> moving on. And she's a counselor, yeah. my wife. Yeah. <laughs> so that gets fun. Um, all right, so <laughs> I chose exponentially. So here's the thing exponentially is an actual mathematical term, it means something. And it's, I, it has come into colloquial use as just any big increase. Anything that's increasing quickly. People say, oh, it's an exponential increase. It's increasing exponentially. No, it actually isn't. If it's inc- it could be increasing linearly, just the same rate over time. Exponential is a subset of a geometric. Actually, a lot of times people mean it's, a, it's increasing geometrically. That actually would be more accurate a lot of the times. But exponential increase is a subset of, of geometric increase where something is increasing by, um, by an exponent, not, not by just a factor. So like, if you double it every time, that's a geometric increase. But if you increase it by a factor of 10 every time, or an exponent, that's an exponential increase. The curve, you know, c- turns almost straight up if you graph it out. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's an exponential increase. So just, that, that's like, a, it's a nitpicky mathematical thing, but it actually has a very specific meaning I wish people would understand and use. Does, does it necessarily need to be orders of magnitude, 10? No, it just has to be an exponent. It doesn't have to be 10. It doesn't, okay. it doesn't have to be factors of 10, but, but it, yeah, it's, it's more than... Just any increase does not make it exponent. <laughs> Bob, I understand that scientists have discovered a new type of supernova. Not just a new supernova, a new type of supernova. Is it a champagne supernova? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> we had that discovery for 20 years. <laughs> the hell is that? Well, there's been a lot of minis in my life this past week. I finally broke down and got an iPad mini, which I really like. Yeah, Let, really? Yeah, let's hear it for the mini. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I got a mini raise at work, although... That's now, how you bought the... Now that I think about it, it's more of a nano raise, but I don't want to talk about it. And uh, astronomers discovered a new class of supernova, a mini supernova. It's so dim that they decided to call it a mini supernova. When everyone thinks of a supernova, what do you think of? A huge star, maybe 10 to 100 solar masses core collapses, it rebounds and blows out the outer atmosphere of the sun, and you've got a, you've got a, a, a massive supernova. That's pretty much what everybody thinks. There's a second class. It's, it's a 1A supernova. That's a white dwarf in a binary star system with another star, like, like a red giant, and it kind of siphons off the gas from the red giant. And then it builds and builds, and it reaches a certain point where it, it blows up and obliterates the entire white dwarf. So that's, that's a supernova as well. So there's two types, or so we thought. But for the past 10 years... Scientists have been seeing these weird, very dim supernovas. They, they have the light signature of a, of a supernova, but they're like, they have the luminosity of like 1%, so they're, it's really tiny. And luminosity is kind of important. You kind of think of luminosity as, as, br- as how bright something is, but it, it, it's really very different. Um, these, these lights that are shining on me uh, have a brightness that changes as you, get, as you get closer, so it depends on how you perceive it. That's brightness, but luminosity is the light that is emitted, all of the light that's emitted, and that never changes by definition. So these 1A supernovas are very special because they have the same luminosity no matter where they go off, and it's helped us make, you know, help us determine they were, they were standard candles so that we know 
how far away things are in the universe, and we also know that it's accelerating its expansion, if, if you've been following that. So what are these mini supernovas? They call them 1AX. They're, they're very similar to the 1A, and they might actually be kind of derivative of them, but you have a binary star system again. You've got the white dwarf and a, uh, and a companion star, but the difference is that this companion star is really weird. It's got, it doesn't have a hydrogen envelope on the outside. The outer atmosphere is not hydrogen. It's helium. And this helium is siphoned off of the companion star onto the white dwarf star, just like the 1A. But the difference is, is that uh, when, when, this thing, when this thing blows, it's, it, obliterate, it doesn't obliterate itself like a 1A. So it, it kind of just will kind of pop and, and explode, and, uh, and, but, but, still, but still be there. It will, it will not go away. The big question, though, is how, how does this happen? What, what is initiating this? And the astronomers really don't have any idea what, what's causing this. The two theories that I found was that the, um, there's some sort of explosion on the companion star that sends a shock wave to the white dwarf, and that ignites the white dwarf and causing it to go. Or there's something going on with the helium shell around the white dwarf, and perhaps that's changing the temperature or m maybe even the density of the white dwarf, and that causes that, that to uh, explode. So, so there's a lot of mysteries here, but... Um, yeah, so one thing, Bob, that you know, we were trying to figure this out is that how do you get a star that has just helium in its outer atmosphere? Where, where's all the hydrogen? Why isn't it... Because even when a star burns <clears throat> through its, its hydrogen and it has helium at the core, and then there's not enough hydrogen at the core to, to ignite any further, it will collapse, it'll get hotter, denser, until the helium, if it stars big enough, then the helium will ignite, and then it will burn its helium for a while. But there's still hydrogen in the outer part of the star. So you're saying is they have a white dwarf with a companion star that has helium in the outer atmosphere that's being stripped off. How does that happen? Yeah, I did a lot of research on this, and it was really it was very hard. One thing I can think of is that this white dwarf or grabbed as much of the hydrogen as it could already. I mean, that's a possibility. But I not enough to be a 1A supernova. Huh? But, but not enough hydrogen to become a 1A supernova, because if it did, it would have destroyed itself. Right, exactly. But then, but also, another, I, was, I was reading right before the show about uh, a theory of these extreme helium stars caused by the merger of two white dwarves. But that's kind of, doesn't make much sense to me, because now we're talking three white dwarves. One, regular, one white dwarf, and then two that combine to form an extreme helium, helium star. That, that doesn't make much sense either. So the answer is, I'm not 100% sure wh where this helium star, how it gets there, how it gets to that state. So. Also, so they've observed, these are, the, and I don't know if, how, if you said this explicitly, right? It's one, about 1% 1 the, the luminosity of a 1A. 1%, one, 1%, yeah. And, but is that a standard candle too, or can these be variable in their luminosity? Yeah, that, again, that wasn't addressed in all the research that I did. I think it, it might be a standard candle, but it, there could also be, you know, quirky physics reasons why it, it can't be. <coughs> you know, be, the standard candle works because it's, the luminosity of the 1As are, are absolutely the same every time. And that's why... Because it's, because it's sucking off pure hydrogen. And hydrogen right. will ignite at the same density, so the same luminosity. Right, but yeah. not only that, there's the, the Chandrasekhar limit of like 1.4 solar masses. Once you go beyond that, then bam, that's what causes it to yeah. fuse and, and then blow the entire white dwarf. Rebecca, so, can you tell me more about the champagne supernova? <laughs> well, it was important research done by Dr. Liam Gallagher back in the 90s. <laughs> Right. That's all I've got. That's, so, Bob and Steve, is that entertaining to you, what you just talked about? Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, maybe more interesting than entertaining, but that's why we have you, Jay. <laughs> For the entertainment part. Yeah, you, thank you. You missed that, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's what all I right. mean. All right, well, we're talking about something maybe, you, maybe you'll find. <laughs> now we're talking. Maybe we'll find this a little bit more interesting, Jay. All right. So, did, you, did everyone here know that vaccines make you gay? 
Yes. Uh, yeah. It's not no. a choice. So an, an Italian, now the, the press is reporting this as an Italian scientist, but this is an Italian <laughs> self-described guru, really. He's not, not really a scientist. He's a scientician. He's a scientician. Uh, John Paolo like. Vanoli, and this guy is a, a, he's a crank. I mean, this guy believes in, you know, in every alternative the, uh, medicine treatment. He doesn't believe that HIV causes AIDS. He thinks you can cure cancer with urine therapy. So that's... Whoa, what, what do they what do? What is that? You have to drink your own urine. Oh, my God. That's all we need to do? That's it. That's it. Yeah, just drink your own urine. <laughs> and that cures cancer? It cures yeah. everything, Jay. So this is Ayurvedic or Indian you know, medicine. Does it have to be on tap? Forget I said that. That's horrible. It's not horrible. Please edit that out of the show. That was a horrible thing to say. You could put it into your soda stream and like, at least it'll be bubbly. Not, not what I meant. <laughs> not what I meant. All right. Vinoli made headlines around the world, the English-speaking world, by, by making this observation. He says, the vaccine is introduced into the child. The child then grows and tries to find its own personality. And if this is inhibited by mercury or other substances present in the vaccine, which enter the brain, the child becomes gay. The problem will especially be present in the next generations, because when gays have children, the children will carry along with them the DNA of their parents' illness. Oh, my God. (laughs) He was not drunk when he wrote this. Because homosexuality is a disease. Even though the World Health Organization has decided that it is not. Who cares? The reality is that it is so. Each vaccination produces homosexuality because it prevents the formation of one's personality. It is a microform of autism, if you will. (laughs) You will see how many gays there will be in the next generation. It will be a disaster. So by his logic, so mercury, the mercury in vaccines is causing it. So by his logic... Tuna fish also makes you gay. Yes. Yeah. Right. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> ironic. Flaming fish, you know. Steve, yeah. are you sure that? I that mean, wasn't also, satire? you know, that doesn't include like, you know, we as adults get vaccines. So, I mean, any anyone could turn gay at any point That's based right. on if they are trying to prevent getting the flu. You know. Like, Far be it from me to argue in this man's favor, but I believe that his logic would say that you're already de- fully developed. Oh, I so see. So it won't work. My it's too personality. Late. He, he it's too did, late for you. Yeah. He did later say, "Yeah, adults are at risk too." Oh, never mind. There you go. <laughs> never mind. Um, My fault for see, applying logic to his yet. argument. Yeah. What about the whole idea that like the world isn't gay? You know, like doesn't he see the statistics? <laughs> we're, just, we're reaching that gay tipping point, Jay. Where it's just coming, the next generation. Oh, is. it's what? It's on its way. How? The best statement is the whole, like, and then the two gay people have children. Yeah. Seriously. For how long have okay. we been vaccinating penguins and bonobos? That's, that's my question. Right. I want him to make a sentence about that and use all those other words wrong. Like, they have exponential quantum yeah. uh, theory that the I've developed. The number of gay people will yeah. increase exponentially. Is he employed anywhere? Like, do people give he's, him money? He sells nonsense to like, global people. That's like maybe the, oh, he's a millionaire then. Yeah. yeah. Right, which means he's a millionaire. Right. <laughs> he's on the world stage. So... I'm also, I was intrigued by the whole DNA angle to this. So mercury is getting into the brains of young children and affecting the development of their brain, and then also their DNA, so that it affects their children. Hmm. 
I mean, they kind of sort of skipped over that or just sort of throwing out terms. Oh, yeah, and the DNA is involved somehow, you know. There's no coherent idea in any of this. And, of course, you know, the, the big whomping nonsense in the middle of this is that being a homosexual is a disease. Yeah. And, you know, he makes fun of the, the World Health Organization. It's also like every psychiatric in, uh, organization in the world as well. Um, going back to the early 1970s or late 1960s, there was actually systematic reviews of many, many studies. This is something that's been actually quite studied. And being homosexual, uh, which is, of course, also a bit of a spectrum. It's like, first of all, how do you define it? It's not, it's not binary. Is it behavior? Is it attraction? Is it self-identification? Is it some of the time, once ever, all the time? You know, so there's all kinds of definitions. Yeah, we're like, we're on the spectrum. Yeah. Right. So if, in any way, if you use some kind of cutoff and say, okay, this is how we're going to operationally design homosexuality, define homosexuality, there's no independent correlation with any mental illness or disorder. It doesn't predict that you will have any problems mentally or emotionally or in your adjusting in your life at all. So it's, you know, it doesn't meet the definition of a psychiatric disorder, period. It's also not, there's no pathology there, so you can't, you know, call it a disease. So this guy's just 50 years out of date in his science, period. Um, but then he claims he's not a homophobe. Mm-hmm. So he thinks, you know, gay should marry. It's not their fault that somebody vaccinated them. You know, that's basically his logic. <laughs> what a good guy. Oh, well, he's so guy. understanding. It's just going to be a disaster for future generations, you know. Nobody ever thinks they're a homophobe, though. That's, <laughs> right. yeah. They're just realistic. You yeah. Know? Pat, Pat yeah. Robertson, I just want them to die. I don't see why that means I hate them. It's out of my hands. <laughs> they're fine. Yeah. God hates them, not me. Yeah. All right, that, that was a good news item. You good with that? Yes. Jay's stamp of approval. Yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. But at least we have Twitter to straighten us out, right, Rebecca? Yeah. No, it turns out. Uh, so social networks have become an important part of how we communicate ideas to one another. Um, and Twitter is one of the busiest. And there's a lot of research going on recently where um, more scientists are starting to be able to crunch data from Twitter, taking huge numbers of tweets, uh, feeding them into an algorithm, figuring out what people are saying and how ideas spread. So back in 2008, if you may recall, uh, there was an H1N1 pandemic. These scientists today wanted to look back during that time period to see how people were talking about the H1N1 vaccine, whether they were positive about the vaccine, tweeting things like, I'm going to get a vaccine, uh, or negative vaccines make you gay, or, you know, what, what have you. And uh, their findings are really interesting um, and super depressing, as you may guess. Basically, what they found was that negative tweets about the H1N1 vaccine tended to be more contagious, for lack of a better word, than positive tweets. So the people who were spreading misinformation, basically the misinformation was traveling far and wide, uh, much further, much wider than positive tweets, um, including, you know, actual scientific facts, like it's safe, it will help stop a pandemic, etc. So that was one of their findings, but it gets worse. They found that for tweeters who were also following other tweeters who were tweeting about the vaccines, if they were following someone who was negative on vaccines, they were much more likely to tweet negative things themselves. There was no correlation with the positive. So someone who was uh, following a positive tweeter wasn't necessarily tweeting as many positive things themselves. Super, 
super depressing. <laughs> um, so, but there's a couple ways I guess you can interpret that. I mean, the worst way, the, the most depressing way, is that negative information about vaccines was more compelling. People were interested, were, were absorbed that and made that their own opinion more readily than positive information. But it could also say something just about the network, the Twitter network of people who tweet anti-vaccine propaganda. Maybe they already have anti-vaccine people in there who are following them. You know what I mean? So it doesn't necessarily, like anything sociological like that or epidemiological, doesn't necessarily establish cause and effect. Right. And the, this study didn't look into the whys. Yeah. That's something that they're hoping that other people will go forward and do. But you didn't let me get to the worst part. Okay. It gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse. Uh, the worst part was that they found that I'll, I'll just, I'll read the quote from one of the researchers. Not surprisingly, we found that a high volume of negative tweets seemed to encourage people to tweet more negatively. But strangely, a high volume of positive tweets seemed to encourage people to tweet more negatively, <laughs> too. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. There, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, Saruman. I, <laughs> so and again, any use of, t of Twitter is negative. <laughs> well, you know, again, they didn't go into the whys. My guess would be that a high volume of, like, I'm going to go get a vaccine tweets are aggravating yeah. the anti-vaccine movement. And it has, you know, it's become a movement and uh, it's activating them, you know. So yeah. they see that and they attack. And yeah. This is, I, I think, similar to the Dwayne Gish effect, you know, going back to do we debate creationists? And if you if you look at it, what happens is, that you mobilize the creationists and the scientists don't care. You know, the general public, are, you're not actually converting anybody from creationism to believing in evolution. You're not necessarily you know, raising awareness about the scientific theory of evolution. You're just really aggravating and mobilizing the creationists. And this has been the dilemma that we as a skeptical movement have faced from the beginning. How do we shine a light on and target and, and explain uh, nonsense and pseudoscience and crankery without breathing life into it at the same time, inadvertently, just because we're giving our attention to it. And it's kind of a catch-22. We have to deal with very delicately, but I don't know if there's any magic solution to it. Well, I mean, the, the good thing about this study, the positive spin you can take away from it, is the mere fact that they were able to crunch all this data. I mean, it was it's a remarkable feat. They took um, something like 300,000 tweets, and um, the the method they used was very interesting. They had college students look through a small sample and sort them into positive, negative, and other, not related. Neutral. And they used that sample to then build an algorithm that allowed the computer to go through the rest of the tweets and sort them automatically. But yeah, the, the fact that they can, they can manipulate the data in that way means that we're going to be learning a lot more about yeah. human behavior and about especially using social networks to educate people. So their takeaway was uh, this should encourage other researchers to dig into this data as well and start coming up with better ways to communicate science. Yeah, no, yeah social media is a huge boon to social psychologists, psychologists, absolutely. I know Richard Wiseman uses it a lot. So that, that is good news. So we, could, we can document how much of an uphill battle we have in front of us. That's exciting. All right. Hey, it's time for oh, science crap. or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Kathleen. Uh-oh. Thank you. Do you, uh, did you get my email about how to play the game? It's 
two items. Okay, let's see if I read the content of the email. Uh, two items are true, and one item is fiction. Right. Unless and, there's four total, then three would be. But there's three. Oh, there's so, three. Okay. Yeah, but, yeah. So three items: two real, one fiction. Yeah. I'll read all three. Then I'm going to poll the audience. We'll see uh, which one you think is the fiction. Then we'll, I'll ask each of uh, my colleagues on stage here to give me their thoughts. You, your job is to persuade the audience as to the one that you think is the fiction. And then um, we'll poll them again and see who, who influenced the audience. And then I'll reveal the answers. Okay. All right, here we go. Item number one. A team of scientists have discovered a method for extracting large amounts of hydrogen from any plant. Item number two, a newly published model predicts that the world's population will stabilize around 2050. And item number three, a review of online learning concludes it is about 60% as effective as face-to-face learning. Hmm. So let's see what the audience thinks about this one. If you think that getting hydrogen from any plant is the fiction, applaud. Okay, if you think that world populations will stabilize around 2050 is the fiction, applaud. It's barely a difference. And if you think that online learning is only 60% as effective as face-to-face learning, applaud. Between one and three. Pretty even. I thought three was a little bit. But... uh, Bob, why don't we start? We'll go from left to right. No, we start with, with the guest. No. We can start from left to right. <laughs> Tell us. Give us your persuasive thoughts as to which one, very concisely, was a live show. Which one do you think is the fiction? Live show. This is why is this Bob live? does last on live shows. <laughs> it takes forever. This is, this is really tough, Steve. Thank you. Hydrogen from any plant. I, I don't know. It kind of rings a bell, but they all ring a bell. So, okay. I don't know. Uh, let's see. World population will stabilize around 2050. I really can't understand how that would happen. I've got, I've got nothing intelligent to say about that. Wow. <laughs> so it doesn't stop you, though, Jay. 60% as effective as face-to-face. I can buy that one. It kind of makes sense that being physically there would make it a little bit more compelling. So I'll just assume that that one is science. All right, I'm going to go with the world population stabilizing in 2050. That that doesn't seem right. I can't. I could see it increasing or decreasing, but not... Not stabilized. Okay. So, fiction. Okay, Rebecca? The online learning one is interesting. I would have thought it was much worse um, because I feel like people just won't won't actually tune in. They won't actually show up. But I don't know. There's a conflict of interest here because you, Steve, do those online learning things. <laughs> so I also, I also do face-to-face teaching. I am a professor. I don't care what you do, Steve. <laughs> Stop bragging. <laughs> So, so I'm trying to figure out um, how you would um, read an, a news item like that. So, I, yeah, I, I, I feel, but I feel like if it was less, I don't think, you don't normally just change percentages, and this is significantly worse uh, than face-to-face. So I believe that that's true. So it's been between the other two. I can believe the model of the world population stabilizing just because it seems like there's a new model like that that comes out every year and they all pick a different mark. So I don't think it'll happen necessarily, but I can believe that someone published that. Uh, so the, uh, so I guess just by process of elimination, I'm going to go with, uh, the plant. 
Okay. Jay? Yeah, Rebecca makes a good point. I was thinking, I don't believe the one about the population stabilizing, but it doesn't mean that someone didn't publish it. Um, so that I'm a little... That's exactly what I said. I have a, yes, I have a theory <laughs> about a conundrum I'm experiencing quantumly at this moment. The, the, the third one, about 60% uh, effective for face-to-face, -face, I, I totally agree. I've done both, and I, I can, uh, you know, I'm, a, uh, I'm agreeing with it absolutely. So I, I think I'm going to say that the first one about the hydrogen is the fake. Okay, Evan. I wonder what a large amount of hydrogen is in this context. I, I don't have a good gauge for that. I mean, we've been able to extract a little bit of hydrogen from plants before, but now we can do a lot. I don't know. Um, the population stabilizing. I'm tending to think that this one is science. There has been a concerted effort, I think, by governments around the world over the past maybe couple generations in order to go through maybe not direct, or in some cases like China, direct population control, but also in Western civilization, I believe that that uh, what was going up at a very steep incline has started to not go as steep. And so, yeah, maybe it will plateau um, around 2050. So I think that one's plausible. I'm having a problem with the last one, 60% as effective. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that number might actually surprise us and that might turn out to be lower. Um, I've read before about the effectiveness of online learning and um, at least from what uh, I've come across, they say that it is very successful. They've had excellent results. So I'm thinking that 60% number might actually be too low. I'm going to go with that one as the fiction. Okay, Kathleen. Wow. Well, number one, I don't know anything about that. So I can't even, I can't even attempt to try and decide whether that's true or not. The hydrogen one, right? Yeah, the hydrogen yeah. one. This was uh, in referencing to extracting large amounts of hydrogen from any plant. Number two, uh, of course, you know, when I first saw that, I thought, come on, what is this crap, you know? But um, number one, I think because I thought that, because of, like, tricks, game tricks, it's probably true. Uh, also, it, uh, it is possible that the population could be stabilizing. I know that birth rates have been declining in Western Europe, and um, ladies, ladies are having certain economic subsets are having children later in life, and they're having um, uh, less numbers as a result. Uh, however, that's coming from a complete Western perspective. I don't know what the case is uh, from a non-Western perspective. So uh, that one's possible. The third one, which is the online learning, um, I agree with Rebecca. I thought that would have been a, a lower number. Um, I do know that there has been a lot of studies done which... It supports the idea that the the way that um, our brains kind of uh, process face-to-face -face interaction is very dynamic and complicated. And uh, so losing that uh, in the exchange, the educational exchange, uh, would be negative. And I also think, you know, people don't show up for class when there's no time to show up for class. Because why would you, Right. <laughs> um, point. So I'm going to, I think, go with what I'm sensing to be not the audiences. The audience seemed was kind of even across. It seemed like number two got the least amount of applause. So, and that meant that they believe that it is right. fiction. So I'm 
but however, it feels like the panel is going with number one being fiction. So, so what do you say? I think I'm going to go with number one. Hydrogen. Fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're all over the place. I love that. Let's go back to the audience very quickly. Who thinks hydrogen from Plenty Plant is a fiction? <laughs> World population stabilizing is a fiction. And online learning, one is a fiction. Oh, wow. Oh, wow, guys. I think it's clearly uh, the third one about online learning uh, after that. You guys had a little bit of an influence, but it seems like they are disagreeing with you uh, largely, unless they're, or they're agreeing with Evan. So, Evan, you were right. extremely persuasive. Thank you, as um, usual. So let's, let's reveal the answer. I guess I could take these in order. Uh, number one, a team of scientists have discovered a method for extracting <laughs> large amounts of hydrogen from any plant. That one is science. Damn. So scientists from Virginia Tech, uh, they managed to develop an enzyme that can strip hydrogen from xylose, which is a... a uh, an alien yeah. in yeah, carbohydrate that is... Somewhere. Xylose is uh, in many plants. So you know, pretty much any plant will have a lot of xylose in it. Of course... Whenever you have a news item that has anything to do with hydrogen, it's the coming hydrogen economy, right? That's, this, this is going to find, this is going to be the, the thing that's going to bring us to the hydrogen economy we've been hearing about. And it is true that finding a source of, you know, a, one or more sources of hydrogen is, a, is definitely a, a huge component of that. There's another thing where there's a lot of misconceptions in the public. Hydrogen is not a source of energy because there's no free hydrogen on the planet. Hydrogen is just a way of storing energy, but you have to get it from somewhere by putting energy into something. You strip hydrogen off of water or hydrocarbons or xylose or whatever, it takes energy, and you're essentially storing that energy in the hydrogen. But we have sources of hydrogen, you know, already. So this is, this, if this pans out and there's a cheap way to mass produce large amounts of hydrogen, that's great. I don't think it's going to really solve all the problems that are, you know, between us and a hydrogen economy. The biggest one in terms of like, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles is that it's really hard to store lots of hydrogen that's safe, that uh, where the storage container doesn't weigh too, so much that it becomes you know, a problem for the car itself, and that can be released quickly enough to be, to be useful, but like won't explode or do things like that. So the, the storage of hydrogen is actually probably a bigger problem right now than just a source of hydrogen. So this isn't, this breakthrough is nice, it's not going to bring us the hydrogen fuel economy that, that the, all the press releases are saying. Okay, let's go to number two. A newly published model predicts that the world population will stabilize around 2050. Uh, I believe just Bob. Okay. And those two people. <laughs> and these three and two people. people. No, I think it's three. I think it's three. It's three. Bob managed to convince the audience not to go for this one. Um, <laughs> Yet. And this one is science. Oh, oh yeah. Wow. <laughs> Nice job. Yes. yes. This is... <laughs> I'm um, shocked. So a study from uh, San Pablo University and Autonomous University of Madrid uh, from research from those two institutions predict that uh, world populations will stabilize around the middle of the 20th century, around 2050. This is actually uh, in agreement with an earlier model by the United Nations. Now, the UN, they, they uh, projected population to 2100. And in their their pro projection was anywhere between 6.2 and 15.8 billion people <laughs> by 2100. 
6.2 is actually lower than the current population. Yeah. Wow. What's that about? Right. They were predicting an actual drop in population by 2100. No, it's the freaking vaccinations. It's what it is. It's the gay. Yeah. It's but the, the gay, gay population. Yeah, because everyone's gay now. So, so hey, there you go. It's actually doing good gay. then. Right. So, uh, what the the Spanish study uh, validated the lower end of the UN projection spectrum, saying, yeah, it's actually going to be towards that low end. Uh, and they predict, you know, stability reaching around 2050. This does have to do, actually, Kathleen, you actually hit upon the thing that that makes this uh, reasonable, and that is that it's fertility rates that are dropping. Mm -hmm. uh, fertility rates have dropped by 40% since 1950. That's hmm. huge. Hmm. Wait, wait, wow. define fertility rate. The number of kids that people have. That's it. <laughs> Why don't you just say that then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, Steve. People are having fewer children, not necessarily less children. But they are having fewer children. Oh, it's like the fertility rate's going down. <laughs> it's like the, it's yeah. like the fertility rate. It's another way of putting down. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it is mainly a Western phenomenon, Western yeah. de developed, we say developed nation phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But as the developing world develops, their fertility rates are dropping too. So this is all in the calculation. Ewan says, well, this is why there's that variability. It's basically, what's the fertility rate going to be? That's the, that's the variable that the UN was, that's what gave them that six to 15 billion person range. It was all on what they project the fertility rate going to be. I think it's Netflix. You think it's Netflix? Yeah, well, you know, you're watching, you know, House of Cards and you're like with your wife and you're like, are we going to watch another episode? Or are we, you infertile? Are we going to go bang and you watch House of Cards? No, it's yeah. true. It's like after watching three to four episodes of uh, episodic dramas on Netflix, you're just wiped out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I actually, I read, very interestingly, I read that with House of Cards, the average number of episodes per sitting was what? Does anyone want to guess? Three or four. Six. Six. What? Netflix what? reported six. people watch six episodes Whoa. when they sit yeah. down. Wow. That's why the unemployment rate is so high. It's a great so show, high. but like that's six hours of that's TV. A, that's, a, that's intense. <laughs> I've done Do it. Do they have jobs? Uh, maybe they're banging that. while they're watching. Maybe they, they should, should be. Maybe well, should. there's a lot of sex on House of Cards. That's true. So maybe people are like, yeah, this hey, is hey, like high class Why don't we porn? do that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe they should take some more online learning courses or something. It's called a segue. All right, go ahead, Steve. We're just yeah. talking over here. You know, it's waiting. So, a review of online learning concludes it is about sixty percent as effective as face-to-face -face learning. That is the fiction. Uh -huh. hmm. So, what was the number? Well, the the, re the recent research that inspired this wasn't actually looking at that number. Uh, they, it was simply um, Harvard researchers. They were testing after online lectures, um, and they were looking for ways of increasing the attention of students. First of all, they they. Uh, Asked students like 10 minutes into an online lecture, was your mind wandering? 40% said yes. Mm. That's a lot. Uh, but how does that differ from when you're in the room? Not, that's the point. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily different than when yeah. you're sitting in the classroom. But what they were looking for were, were methods to, to improve the attention of students during online lectures. And one technique they came up with was to, was to test them on the material. If you gave them a little, a little mini quiz, uh, after 10 minutes, or after like, they, do, they actually broke it down into five minute videos. You watch five minute videos, you do a little quiz. Do five minute video, do a little quiz. Their attention, their retention of the material was all improved. I actually, I read this study, and one of the other suggestions they made was to just have Kevin Spacey deliver. Yeah, that would be good too. <laughs> Break the fourth wall. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I did, for, for in prepping for this, I had to make sure that my made-up number was really not re correct, because sometimes I make up stuff that's real. <laughs> Reviewed. We call that imagination. Yes. <laughs> Steve made well. up an elephant once. He's like, God damn! <laughs> <laughs> what if there's an animal with a big What nose? are the odds? <laughs> There, a recent review of really a hundred years of research, if you include any remote learning, not just online, any remote learning, but of co obviously like the last 10 or so years, if you're looking specifically at online learning, shows that it is just as effective as face-to-face. -face. There really mm -hmm. isn't any significant difference between the two. Um, in terms of any, you know, any outcomes that were measured. I find so, that hard to believe. I mean, I've done, I've done them both. And really, when you're listening to someone talk over the computer, like you start messing yeah. around in your computer, right. you so might play a video game. It does take people longer. It takes people about four times as long to get through an online lecture as sit through a lecture in class. Mm -hmm. um, but that's because they get they get distracted. Yeah. But wouldn't you but call that, that less effective? Yeah. No. But, so, but think about it. They, they less effective in terms of un, getting understanding the material, being able to you know do well on a test of that material, well, etc. Put that on the thing. Well, this is the fiction. I don't have to go into all the details about the other stuff. Yes, you do. Um, the, uh, but again, that, this was this was I think their their study, this new Harvard study. I think it might have been something else I was reading, uh, but they said that yeah, it could, it could take a long time to get through the online lecture. But think about it. That may be a good thing if your mind wanders and you go, okay, wait a minute, I have to go back now and re-listen to the part that I was wandering for, when you're in a lecture live, there's no pause or rewound button, rewind button. It's not like TiVo. You can't yep. you know, whip out your remote and rewind your professor and have him say the thing again. Um, so if you miss it because your mind is wandering, it's gone. Hmm. Uh, and there's only so many times you can interrupt and say, hey, can you say that again? So, uh, yeah, so that, that may be an advantage or a disadvantage depending on how you look at it. I think it's kind of an advantage. And I, and also, and this is now, now I'm going to give you my personal anecdotal experience just from my teaching at Yale. Students love online learning. They love it. The younger generation, man, give them a podcast, give them anything online. They would rather do that in a million years rather than sit in a lecture hall and, and listen to a live. They want to do it in their own time in their own, you know, uh, space when they're under control where they could pace it to their own learning speed rather than being set to the, the learning speed of the class. So th that the research that I found supports what the students are telling us mm. that they love online learning because they're in control and because they're, th this generation, this is how they get information. They want to listen to podcasts and read stuff online and do things at their own pace in virtual time. All right. So mm. that's what I found in the Fine. research. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, well done, the audience so. actually did very well. Good job. Yeah. Yeah. Nice job, yeah. audience. Nice work. The audience and Evan. I'm and sorry Evan. I didn't agree. Thank you. And to reward you, we're going to allow you to ask us some questions. I was at a stimulus response thing last night, and you guys talked a little bit about brain psychology. I had a question. Like One of the things that came up was a conversation about how there's a part of your brain that's sort of like the brakes. Like, your subconscious is coming up with ideas saying, do this, do this. And there's another part of your brain that says, whoa, that maybe not be such a good idea. And I was wondering, like, about alcohol and prayer, the two things I was thinking of. Like, I know people use prayer to sort of shut that down maybe. And I, I always feel like alcohol kind of shuts that down. Like, yeah, let's do it, you know. So, yeah. anyway, that's what I wanted to ask about. Yeah, so the, the question is, um, you know, we were talking uh, at Stimulus Response last night about the fact that you, your subconscious mind comes up with a lot of information, a lot of processing, even decisions. 
uh, and then you, your more conscious self, the frontal lobe, the executive function, has an opportunity to decide whether or not it's going to just accept and, and often rationalize that decision or if it will override it um, because it's not in your best interest to do whatever it is your, the lizard part of your brain is telling you to do, for example. Uh, and then the, the question is, does alcohol inhibit your frontal lobes from inhibiting that behavior? And the answer is absolutely yes. That's how alcohol works. It just inhibits your brain function. Huge part of the brain is the frontal lobe's executive function. And when you inhibit that, then you get more, you know, out of control behavior. That's exactly what alcohol does. And interesting, you talked about prayer. So uh, I'm not familiar off the top of my head with literature on prayer, but we did talk on the show about the fact that listening to a charismatic leader has the same effect. You guys remember this? When you, li- when you, especially when that charismatic leader believes the same belief system that you do, when listening to that, you turn off your executive function. We could see, again, we see, we could see this in the fMRI scans, looking at people's brains. That whole reality testing, questioning, you know, skeptical part of the, the people's brains would switch off when they were listening to a charismatic speaker, especially within their own religion, within their own belief system. So they're, they're, they're literally turned off their critical thinking. And we often use the term, I remember I made this point at the time, we use the term that, they, that the, the, a charismatic speaker hypnotized the crowd. It turns out that that's literally true. It's not just a metaphor or a saying, that the same kind of thing happens in certain kinds of hypnosis. Are you doing that to all of us right now? I'm trying. <laughs> if you not stop the interrupting me, and I almost had them. You know. <laughs> this guy was drooling over here. <laughs> Next question. Okay. Uh, quick comment and then a question. Um, as far as the idea about the idea about social media um, overwhelmingly promoting negative information over positive, um, I'm a physician, and uh, of course that means I prescribe medications, and I always try to explain to people basically what they can expect from the medication. But then of course they all run to the internet and look it up, and the information they get is overwhelmingly negative, um, and they always come back and say, "You gave me this stuff, and it's going to kill me. Why'd you do that?" Um, and the reason is because no one runs to the internet uh, and says. My doctor gave me a pill. It worked, period. People, right, but if people right. have a side effect, they run to the Internet and say, oh, this is terrible medicine. Don't take it. And that's right. what gets promoted over and over and over again. Yeah, um, I think that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. That's why anecdotal information is not useful because it's self-selective by things like that. People care more to say – it's like when you, leave a, you, have a, you buy a product and it sucks and it breaks mm-hmm. after two minutes, you, I'm going to go write an angry comment on you – know, exactly. but if it works great, you know, most people are like, okay, good. It's what I expected. There's, it's a non-event. It, works, it worked fine. Maybe if you were surprised by how wonderful it was, you might write a positive comment. I'm starting to think that most positive comments on product reviews are all fake. And made by right. the manufacturer. Yeah. But anyway, you're right. That's, there's an absolute differential mm-hmm. in terms of producing, being motivated to give negative feedback. Mm-hmm. And, and that has a, a dramatic impact on it. I'm in the same position you are in terms of patients. I find you have to prepare them. You know, now, and sometimes I'll even say that. Like, now, if you go on the Internet and look this up, you're going to read all kinds of disturbing things. But don't be put off by that because here's the real information. Or at least like a quickie, if, you, if you're getting information on the Internet, make sure you go to reputable, you know, university sites or government sites and don't... All right, don't, Steve, why don't you and this guy get a room, all right? Yeah. Don't, <laughs> don't listen to every comment on the Internet, yeah. Uh, so my question just has to do with uh, last night. One of the things I'm interested in, I'm actually a, a grad student uh, in fine arts right now, and I'm writing my thesis on uh, the kind of exchange of visual information between art and science. 
And I was wondering if you could just touch on some of the methodological similarities between working in a studio environment working at, as opposed to working in a laboratory environment. Um, and also the second part of my question is uh, when you guys were talking about the sort of exchange of information from one medium to another medium, like um, from music to painting, um, and sort of the things that, that sync between those things. What about the things that don't translate from one medium to another? And is there that sense of uh, futility, that <laughs> futility that there's not um, this kind of information transfer? And uh, just if you could just touch on that. Steve, can you take that? If that made sense. Um, actually, I thought Rebecca would want to comment on the art versus science thing since you, have, you run your Mad Art Lab project. Well, yeah, I don't, you don't run it. I don't I mean, run you're, it. You're, you're, but we have it. Your people are involved. With yeah, that. and actually, our, the, there are at least two Mad Art Lab writers. There they are. Um, talk to them <laughs> later. Um, if you guys aren't familiar, MadArtLab.com is a sister site of Skeptic, and it's run by artists who uh, have an interest in science and skepticism. Right. And they do a fantastic job of. It, I, I really think it helps spread ideas of science in a in a better way than, or at least a different way than we can get by just lecturing someone. Yeah. Um, it, it makes it easier to digest and, and fun. I, I think some of the similarities as a non-artist, but as a scientist, but who's interested in these kind of things, is first of all the creativity, which is what we were talking about last night. You, you know, science is a very creative endeavor. Having to come up with new ideas, new ways to explain the universe involves a great deal of creativity. And also there's process, there's a process to it, and there's technique to it. You know, sometimes you have to master the boring nitty-gritty details of whatever, how to do a certain pain stroke or how to play an instrument or how to run an in a scientific instrument. At some point in your scientific lab training, you're the lab monkey who's doing the boring, you know, very technical, detailed stuff because you have to master that just like doing scales. Right, that's the same thing as doing scales on, a, on an instrument. You have to master certain basic techniques. So I think there's a lot of similarities in those, in those ways. We are going to end this show, as we do all of our shows, with an inspiring quote. So this is a quote from Clara Ma. Uh, at the time, in 2009, she was 15 years old, and she won the... No, she, I think she was 12, and she's 15 now. Oh. I just took this off the web. Okay, I'm sorry. Right. I could be wrong. She was young. Young, young girl uh, won the NASA essay contest to name the Mars rover. I wrote my essay. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> South Park That reference. one person knew. Yeah, one per thank you. Thank you. So she, this is awesome. So this is her quote talking about science. Science is so awesome. It is breathtaking and mind-blowing, intertwining and unifying, and sometimes it's just a little bit crazy. The discoveries we make about our world are incredibly humbling. They move us forward and have the potential to benefit all of mankind. That is Clara Ma! Yeah, I'm sorry. She named it Curiosity. You all know that, right? No, no. So this is the girl. She won the essay contest to name the Curiosity Mars probe. And that's why it's called the Curiosity Pro. That's, no, that's she, she said it should be named Curiosity, and then wrote an essay why it should be, and she won. That, that's why we're quoting her. Yeah, very, very smart little girl, obviously. So thank you, everyone, for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Oh, thank you. Oh, thanks, thank Steve. you for having me. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> and thank you, everyone, for being in the audience. Thank you to Nexus 2013. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Thank you, the SGU, let's hear it, Farm! 
The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.